There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Today's guests are retired Army Sergeant Dan Rose, former Army Captain Megan Mobbs, Marine Sergeant Chris Merkel, and Dr. Albert Skip Rizzo, Director of Medical Virtual Reality at the University of Southern California's Institute for Creative Technologies, to discuss the mental health effects stemming from Afghanistan's downfall, their viewpoints on the withdrawal, and what can be done to support those who may be hurting. Dan, Megan, Skip, Chris, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. It's, uh, it's like the Brady Bunch up here with everybody. I think this is the record for the number of guests we've had. And, uh, you know, some of you, have, this is your second time on the show. And so you're all very close and dear friends of mine. Uh, and it's great to see you all again. Uh, unfortunately, in the circumstance why we're together today, not so great. So that being said, Dan, Megan, and Chris, let's just go around the horn so each of you can briefly introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you, pre and post service, and about your time in the military. Uh, Chris, you want to go first? Yeah, so my name is uh, Chris Merkel out of uh, Southern California. I was a Marine forever, (laughs) Marine grunt. Uh, Went to a lot of fun places, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, ironically, and uh, served served great, had a great time over there in a kind of weird way. Um, Went to law enforcement after that, went to contract and went back to Afghanistan because I felt the mission was so great, the need was great over there, and now trying the academic realm. Dan? Uh, yeah, so I live in Denver now. I was originally from Wisconsin. Uh, joined up right out of high school, basically, to get money for college. Um, after I graduated, I hadn't been deployed yet, so I kind of felt guilty. Um, you know, so I volunteered to deploy over to a, the southern Afghanistan doing route clearance as a combat engineer. Um, yeah, so I was there for about eight months, and then I ended up getting hit by an IED. Uh, so that left me paralyzed from the chest down. Uh, since then, I was medically retired. I've uh, been working with you, Chris, on Soldiers Drawn, uh, and now I'm on a national team for the U.S. wheelchair curling, so got that going for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. Congrats on that. Last but not least, Megan. Uh, so, Chris, thank you so much for having me. I am Megan Mobbs. So, I grew up in the military. Both of my parents served. My mom was one of the first women to go to airborne school. She deployed to Grenada. My dad served for over 30 years, and it was in the Pentagon on 9-11. And so I decided I wanted to follow in my parents' footsteps. I graduated from West Point in 2008, and then I served as an aerial delivery detachment commander in Afghanistan, providing aerial resupply to 45 remote combat outposts and forward operating bases. I left the Army back in 2013 for a variety of reasons. Uh, One of them is my husband is still active duty. It's very difficult to raise a family being dual military, so kudos to all those who do it. Um, I went back to school for psychology. I just graduated from Columbia with my doctorate in psychology where I focus on trying to understand the crucial role of transition stress. So leaving active duty, re-entering the civilian world and the lives of military veterans. So it's Dr. Megan now. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Well done. And Dr. Rizzo, share your background, how you started to work with military personnel and veterans and what that work involves, please. Okay. Well, I, as you mentioned earlier, I direct the medical virtual reality lab at the University of Southern California. 
And really, my work has uh, involved over the last 25 years developing technology-based systems for mental health and rehabilitation. Uh, basically, the scene that you see behind me here is a uh, cut from a virtual Afghanistan scenario that we developed as a tool for treating post-traumatic stress disorder, combat-related, um, by delivering what's called exposure therapy. So our work over the years has evolved uh, across a range of areas, but one of the core areas has been the treatment of trauma uh, by delivering an evidence-based approach within these VR simulations. And Chris, by the way, you're, you're outnumbered here today. Uh, you've got three psychologists uh, <laughs> on this panel here. <laughs> that that, that means, a I need, talk. means I need a, a lot of thinking uh, or a lot of fixing to do, I should say. Um, I didn't even realize that. Good point, Skip. So before we get into our conversation about mental health, I'd like to talk about the situation in Afghanistan and get your perspectives on it. One former intelligence official and U.S. Marine who served in Afghanistan told CNBC, while the end result and bloodletting once we left was never in doubt, the speed of collapse is unreal. Meanwhile, President Biden said last week that the chaos we're seeing was, air quotes, inevitable, whether we had withdrawn 10 years ago, five years ago, today, or five years from now. Did any of you believe that while you're in country or have your superior officers suggested this end result was inevitable as President Biden is saying? Megan, we'll start with you. So I don't believe the chaos was inevitable. So even if the fall of the Afghan government might've been, I think this chaos could have been avoidable. There's been, you know, this isn't a political talk show, but there's been a variety of missteps by the administration. One of the largest errors was giving up Bagram. So I served out of Bagram Air Base, it's huge had two runways, we would have had the ability to evacuate far more people, far more quickly and far more securely if we hadn't given up Bagram. And broadly speaking, I, I think again, that maybe the collapse could have been inevitable, but not certainly not the chaos. Um, and I think it's important to mention that in some ways our military, and I, and I say this understanding how provocative this might be, but that our military in some ways has been living a lie. And when you live a lie, nothing is more threatening than the truth. And watching the videos come out of Afghanistan arguably the loudest truth-telling moment of my lifetime. There's no more running from kind of the situation that we created on the ground. A report came out in 2015 that made a huge splash at the time, but quickly got buried, that we were lying about readiness assessments for our partner forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and it's not that they don't necessarily possess the ability or capability to fight. Um, it's that we weren't actually capturing it. We weren't measuring it appropriately. And we were fashioning an army in our image, which was just ignorant of that situation. So it's a long way to say that I don't think this uh, chaos was inevitable. I think this could have been avoided. Dan, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I think the entire time I was over in Afghanistan, you know, just being in a line level unit, I never really had a picture of, you know, like what the big picture idea was or whatever. So for me, it felt like Groundhog's Day. You know, like we'd basically just go out, drive over out, look for bombs. At night, they put more bombs back. We'd go out, look for more bombs. You know, and it was just a same thing over and over again. And I guess I also didn't even really see what the objective or the end goal ever was and what we were working towards. So I guess I, you know, like I, I never did see a victory possible coming out of Afghanistan. And Chris, how about you? Um, I appreciate Megan's like the 30,000 foot view. And I think that's a very realistic assessment um, on the ground and then being in a different role in that the uh, Department of State role, it's getting to see the entire country and kind of seeing it from a different lens. 
it was really hard because I, I saw it from the, the people, people lens, not in that military lens. And it was uh, very hard because you want to support them. You want to believe them. But I mean, they're just not, I mean, say what you will about their history, but they're just not war fighters as we see them. They're just really gentle, nice people. And even the training ground to ground, you know, they just wanted, I think, like she said, like they just wanted to appease us and try to do what we asked, you know, try to like, let's do these military things. Let's, let's do what these guys are trying to say. But yeah, on, on the ground, just personally, I mean, they just don't have that same, I mean, it comes from a, you know, we're a very individualistic society where they're coming in like this, you know, they want for the greater good. They're more worried about crops and tea and just being friendly and they're always very nice. But I mean, to, it's hard to take that and they don't have to instill our boot camp, all the training that goes into it, all the basic training and that mythology of like breaking us down and making us into that that killer model, like literally of, you know, singing songs about doing all those things to set that mind frame, get us set up to do our job and destroy it. They don't, you know, you can't do that with just doing some calisthenics and shooting at a range. You just can't put that, build that mindset in and we can't instill freedom. That has to be something that's done with, from within. And maybe as a follow-up to that, President Biden also said of the Afghan government and people, we gave them every chance to determine their own future. We could not provide them with the will to fight for that future. Do you agree or disagree and why? Maybe Chris, I'll have you go first this time. Oh, yeah, just uh, carrying on that. I mean, yeah, you can't instill somebody that will to fight. And I said, but before we came along, even when we were there, anybody, all of you that were there know it's not even a, I hate that term, second or third role, but it's it's almost in the dark ages, not by their own fault. It's just because they've been under somebody else for so many years that anywhere is just, they're barely existing out there, what we would consider civilization, water, and like that. So for them, a bigger picture of being self-autonomous and having that liberty and that freedom is something they've never experienced. And you can't really instill that with somebody with some uniforms and some weapons. And so it has to be internal driven, just like our fight for democracy, kind of that being pushed down, like, hey, you can't do this with taxation, things like that. They've never experienced that. So they have they didn't have that internal drive. We were there doing everything for them, all the heavy lifting, the driving, and slowly left seat, right, right seating and kind of showing what we do. And when all this fail, we call in our air support, but that doesn't happen once we're gone. So Dan, how about you? I think like one thing that I noticed in where I was at, like in the districts of Bari and Panjway, was that there really wasn't a national Afghanistan identity for them. You know, like the locals that we interacted with, it was that alley that they lived, grew up in. They would take their produce into the the Kandahar or the bazaar or whatever to sell it. But I mean, that was about it. They were born there, they lived there, they died there. There wasn't an overarching concept of what the country was. Um, so I don't, I think that was more of our idea projected onto them or whatever. I don't know if it was ever fair to ask them to do that. And Megan? Just a caveat, a little bit off of what Dan just said, right? When I said earlier that we fashioned an army in our image, this is a very tribal nation. We pulled people out of their locality and then had them serve in different locations. That works in America. Like you can be born in Tennessee and be stationed in North Carolina, for example. That's not the way that that country necessarily works. And by doing that, we were disconnecting a populace from really the nexus of where they felt they belonged. So we were trying to fashion them in our image. And and, and I will be honest, the Afghans have lost more every year on average than we did in 20. And that's not to say that our losses weren't significant and great, but the idea that they haven't fought, I think is a, is a, is a big misconception on what they haven't been willing to do. And I think that we're also like, there's, you know, one of the number one rules of warfare, the enemy always gets a vote. We have been very good at underestimating the capability of the Taliban. 
So they aren't fighting by kind of traditional rules of warfare. They are finding power influencers in these small areas and then executing them and their families. And that spreads, right? The idea that you can get the toughest person, the most hard to get person, and you kill them and then you kill their family. And that creates this ripple effect throughout the community. And they're also extraordinarily good at psychological warfare. And we're seeing so much of that come out. And so the idea about a will to fight, I think, is really multifaceted. And then boiling it down just to that, um, I find a lot of problems with. So, Skip, Stephen Biddle, who's a professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University, ascribed the collapse to a herd psychology mentality of sorts. He said, when the U.S. announced a total withdrawal, that sent a signal to Afghan soldiers and police that the end was near. And it converted chronically poor motivation into acute collapse because nobody wanted to be the last man standing after the others gave up. But it also said, once the signal was sent, contagion dynamics thus took over and the collapse snowballed with increasing speed and virtually no actual fighting. Does a chain of events this massive, this catastrophic, come down to such simple dynamics or is the contagion dynamic more complicated than that? Well, I, I think certainly it's more complicated, but it, this captures it in a nutshell. When people lose hope, when they fear that um, no matter what they do as an individual is going to have an impact or at worst, you know, keep their family alive. Uh, you know, that's a pretty strong demotivator for standing up and being not the, not only the last guy standing, but the first guy shot. Um, you know, there's a reason, you know, Afghanistan is, is viewed as the, uh, you know, what is it? The, uh, the cradle of, um, of lost empires or something along that effect. I think everybody that's spoken so far has laid out all the seedbed for how something like this could happen. And when you announce that, you know, you're going to be, we're going to be leaving, you're going to be on your own. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you can expect a large enough faction to stand up and say, okay, we're going to be on our own. Let's prepare. Let's go. I think, uh, you know, what you're seeing right now is, is essentially an Afghanistan brain drain. All the people that were impacted by the last 20 years of sort of Western values, education, hope, vision for the future, or maybe the vision of democracy. They're the ones that are trying to get out because they know that it's going to go back to the, um, the way it was before and it's this is a cycle that the you know what the british the russians now our turn um i i think it's it's going to be devastating for the people that want to get out of there that can't get out that's going to be the true tragedy you know uh, little girls that grew up in a free society being able to to get an education and look forward to a dream of having a career or or, or choosing to be a mother whatever it is that's going to be taken away from it. I don't know how that shock is going to be handled. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a tragic situation. Uh, we had 20 years to think about it. I'm, I'm really kind of puzzled that there wasn't a better execution on this back end, um, a gradual execution of an exit strategy. Um, I think that's unfortunate. We're going to be analyzing this and the mental health impacts of this, you know, for decades to follow. And, you know, let's hope we learn something from it. You know, I, I you know, we learned some lessons from Vietnam, certainly, but some of those lessons were forgotten in this situation. And, 
there's going to be mental health ramifications all the way around the horn on this one. Yeah. And to that point, you know, we'll talk about it shortly, but you know, you talk about people wanting to get out and needing to get out the clock being turned back 20, 30, 50 years. You know, I think most of us saw the video of the U S aircraft um, air force plane taking off and people literally hanging on. And then when they land, they find human body remnants on the plane. You know, I can't imagine what that's going to trigger for anybody. Um, but, you know, we'll get into that shortly. Dan Caldwell, a Marine veteran who served in Iraq and now a senior advisor with a group called Concerned Veterans for America, said its members believe President Biden made the right decision to get America out of Afghanistan. He says their polling says a majority of veterans who have served in Afghanistan wanted to see us get out. To the veterans here, do you agree or disagree and why? Megan, ladies first. So two things can be true at once. I agree with leaving. I do not agree with how it was and is being conducted. Dan? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with uh, Megan on that. I think we definitely should have gotten out probably a long time ago, but we should have done it in a better way. And Chris? Yep. <laughs> All three. Trifecta. All right. Unanimous. So do any of you know any Afghans that you worked with who are still in the country? I, I hope not for their sake, because the interpreters that I worked with when I was there were just terrified that if they were found out that their families would be executed, you know, and so I hope that they were among those that got out. Megan or Chris? Yeah, I, um, we've gotten out a, a few families. We're still working on one more, I believe. Um, everything's changed over. Germany's taken over the um, the control of Hamed Karzai Airport, International Airport, so things are kind of, out, they've been out of our control, unfortunately. So it's going to be a challenge and just seeing the daily updates are, yeah, that's the challenging part. And that goes into the mental health aspect as well of people who are here and people who serve down there. Yeah, I echo exactly what Dan and Chris just said. Like, I hope that they all got out. Um, and and right now it's it's near impossible to, if they haven't. And so that, that feeling of paralysis and being unable to do anything um, has been really challenging the, the past week. So that same Iraqi war veteran, Dan Caldwell, also said he thought he had an inkling of what veterans who served in Afghanistan might be feeling because he had watched just about every place he served overtaken by ISIS. He said, I went through a range of emotions when that happened. I was angry, somewhat depressed. I felt empty. And I think that a lot of Afghanistan veterans are struggling with that and they're struggling with it in their own unique way. Again, for our veterans, what emotions have you been feeling since the Taliban entered Kabul? Dan? I guess it's kind of, I feel lost, you know, for the longest time, I kind of justified the sacrifices that I made to, you know, maybe giving these people a better life or something like that. And then all of a sudden just seeing it fall so quickly and so reminiscent to Saigon, you know, it was like, was, it was like you just hit pause from September 10th, 2001, and then replay or then hit play on it again today. And all of a sudden the Taliban's back. Chris? Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been struggling with it and challenged by it on, like I said, all those different levels. Um, once again, I have to refer back to Megan. She hit it on the head. I mean, it hits us on every level. You know, the the pride, the anger, the loss, and then the feeling of uh, regret on our our allies' part, and not even and not even just the allies, the actual people on the ground, the people who live there day to day, the men, women, children, and families. That their whole, especially those who are in that. 
teenage 20 year bracket. I mean, imagine you're 20, you know, we're all taking kids to college right now. Imagine your teenage son or your daughter saying, all that is gone now and you're back to the stone age and this is your new rule. So yes, it hurts for my service and the, and the friends and family that were lost there, but it's, it's ironically, I'm more concerned about the people who are left behind because I'm here and I could talk on this, but they don't have the opportunity. So yeah, it's, it's very crushing. And Chris, you sent an email to Skip and I about a week and a half ago when all this really started to unfold. And you know, to paraphrase it, you simply said, you know, what the hell was I fighting for? Why? Why did I sacrifice so much? And I think, and I'm not a veteran, but you know, I think there are going to be thousands, thousands or tens of thousands of veterans saying that right now. And hopefully we can help them get their voice out. Yeah. And if I could just expand on that real quick before you jump to Megan, it's and with nine eleven, you know, your connection to nine eleven. I mean, that's why I initially went, you know, nine eleven. Let's go raw. I was that was my that was what I was doing. That was my job, and I was great at my job. But once I was on the ground and in that human element, we're all humans. We all make that connections, and you know when someone's a good person, you can feel the genuineness there, and that definitely shifted my mission. You know, the bad guys are still the bad guys, but you know, end of the day, we're you know, Marines are no better friend, no worse enemy. We want to get the job done. Megan. So yeah, I'm going to echo again what Dan and Chris just said. And and for me, it's it's not necessarily even that the Taliban entered Kabul. I think probably some part of my brain recognized that was a distinct possibility that would happen. It's the feeling that we abandoned and are abandoning those who served alongside us. And that we're also abandoning fellow Americans that can't seem to get out right now either. And, you know, Chris, to your point earlier, it's the grotesqueness that people would rather cling to a plane and risk de- death for the chance, the glimpse of freedom rather than remain under Taliban rule. And that just the idea of that, the humanity of wanting to say, like, I would rather live 30 seconds in freedom than live 30 years under tyranny in Afghanistan is just such a powerful and overwhelming thing. Um, so I've like alternatively felt very angry in the present. Um, and then I am mourning to Chris's point about the future. I am mourning the future for people who thought there was hope, who thought there was the opportunity for education for their daughters or a job. I mean, there is a mayor, a female mayor in a district in Herat, the third largest city in Afghanistan. And she has come out and said, like, I'm just sitting in my house waiting to die. And she was a leader. She was a mayor of a district. And now she's just sitting there knowing that the time is ticking for her. So, yeah, I think I've alternatively felt any number of things, um, sadness, rage, anger, uh, anxiety, and then just a paralysis. And I, I can't do more. And I want so desperately to do something. And Skip, obviously you have different experiences and bring a different perspective to this conversation. Can you speak to what an event of this magnitude does to the psyche of individuals who have sacrificed so much to see that this wouldn't happen? And yet it did happen and it happened so swiftly. You're on mute. Sorry, Skip. Um. You know, first off, I want to correct my statement from before. I meant to say graveyard of empires, not the uh, cradle of empires or civilization. Um, you know, the, the, the conditions there uh, have never been conducive for bringing about an outside imposed change. Now, to your, directly to your question, this uh, we've been complacent in believing that, you know, we could actually walk away from this and maybe... You know, it would carry on um, in our image, if you will, um, and the way it's gone, and, and the tragic imagery, and all the all the finger pointing in every different direction, and plenty of blame to go around. Um, it's a shock 
to the belief system. You know, when you think about what's a metaphor for, you know, Joe, every person, um, you know, what happens when you have an unexpected death in the family? What happens when you're, you know, in a divorce and there's been unfaithfulness that you didn't know about or any of these kinds of things, a job that you've worked at for 30 years, the company goes under. These are fundamental existential shocks to the system. And I think on a global level, you know, we're seeing um, this kind of uh, experience. Anybody, certainly people that have been there. I mean, let's face it, military personnel, you know, maybe they go into the military for one reason, but when you're in the military for a period of time, you believe in the mission. You know, you want to make a difference. You see yourself in a special role. And now that's what's happening now is calling into question. You know, you may have had doubts when you were there, like, oh, there's a warlord nation. Um, you know, there are all the things that you may think about, but you still have that hope that what I'm doing has meaning. And, um, you know, this is that kind of a, a shock. Um, and, and it's, it's certainly going to have an effect. I'm just hoping that the folks that were there and put their heart and soul into this, um, can go back and, and pull out of it that, you know, I did my best job. I did everything I could with goodwill, uh, to make a difference. Um, and, Sometimes this is how it turns out, but my effort was not meaningless. We've been talking to military veteran Stan Rose, Megan Mobbs, Chris Merkel, and Dr. Skip Rizzo, Director of Medical Virtual Reality at the University of Southern California's Institute for Creative Technologies. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. 
Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with military veterans Dan Rose, Megan Mobbs. Chris Merkel, and Dr. Skip Rizzo, Director of Medical Virtual Reality at the University of Southern California's Institute for Creative Technologies. And apologies, Megan, I didn't, during the break, write doctor to introduce you here, so I'll, I'll correct that next time. So, Skip, before the break, we were talking about how an event of the magnitude of Afghanistan's collapse affects the mental health of so many people, notably among the American population, those men and women who served in that country in hopes of establishing democracy and greater freedom there. The director of the Department of Veterans Affairs National Center for PTSD Consultation Program said it matters how a conflict ends. Dr. Sonia Norman wrote in her blog, even before Kabul fell, that people are looking for meaning. What does it mean that I went there? What does it mean that I risked my life? What does it mean that I saw other people lose their life? Why does an event like this make it difficult to answer those questions? Well, you know, a lot of times when you think about some of the negative mental health after effects of war, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is post-traumatic stress. Um, I think this is fundamentally different in the sense that um, people like Bill Nash have uh, coined a term called moral injury, which, you know, it isn't quite, it is not the same as PTSD. It may have some of the same symptoms, but it's when you feel like, you know, you've been engaged in a situation where you may have violated your ethical code or you've seen things that you may erroneously think you could have prevented the death of a child or um, you had to kill somebody that was questionable, but they were threatening. All these things that that end up being things that follow you. Um, and a lot of times they're called PTSD, but it might have a completely different flavor. I'd like to propose that, you know, service members and the civilians right now are probably going through what I would term existential injury. So it's not just your own moral code, but the code of what it is to be an American, what it is to intervene for a righteous cause, but then to see this outcome not go out the way uh, we thought it would. Now, you know, we don't know how it'll shake out. Maybe many of those people that uh, get out will uh, you know, lead great lives and maybe lead some kind of a revitalization of Afghanistan from afar. I, you know, I, <laughs> I'm speculating wildly here. Um, but what we're seeing now is a 
on, on par with, with the experience of this experiment of nature we call COVID, where everything in our, our, our perspective about how life and the order of it should be and good triumphing over evil and all that has been shaken. Well, I think we're having that same kind of an existential uh, struggle. And it has deep roots in, you know, the America's position, say, after World War II, and all the things that have happened since then. Um, We're really doing a lot of soul searching about what it is about being a leader in the world. And when it doesn't go the way we want it, um, what, how does that reflect on our intent, on our belief systems, on our values? And, you know, a lot of core values are being challenged here, you know, like leaving people behind. <laughs> That's at the core of, of military ethos. You don't do that. Um, you know, look how long we, you know, we still negotiate with Vietnam about missing in action, getting remains. Uh, you know, so this is going to be a long thing and it's going to take a lot of coping, this adjustment to the reality. And certainly you could have predicted that this would have happened at some point, but just the way it unfolded, you know, um, let's hope uh, we can learn something from this and maybe grow not only as individuals, but as a nation as well. I'd like our veterans to answer those questions if they would. What does it mean that you went there? What does it mean that you risked your life? And what does it mean that you saw other people lose their lives? Chris, start with you, please. Got me reflecting there. <laughs> uh, it doesn't, doesn't really mean anything in a weird kind of way. That was my job. Um, that is war. I mean, it's literally you kill and destroy everything that you can of the enemy. You deny resources. You do that. It's a horrific thing. You know, war throughout history is there are no winners or losers. Everybody loses. Um, and kind of to Skip's point about, you know, going in there, it's almost that nation building from World War One, World War Two. you know, going in there and trying to we destroy a country, destroy, take away all its infrastructure, do all those things. And we feel this obligation as a U.S. both, you know, being the good guys, we want to try to save everything. We went to Japan and luckily they were industrious enough to come out of that. Um, we thought we could do that here. Same with Iraq and Afghanistan. That, that, that's not our role. The U.S. military is to fight and win wars, period. We're not a reconstruction, you know, in, during the war and making quite speak to this being an officer. It's, you know, hey, you're a battalion commander. You're now the governor of this province that you know nothing about the culture, the language, the religious history, the different factions. And here's this interpreter. Um, he's going to tell you his side of it. And so it makes it really hard. On the, I kind of lost my train of thought, but yeah, it's very difficult to do with all those things. But I'm fine with the, the job I did there and the, the military aspect. I have no problem of doing my job. And I could go back like almost every bet and go back tomorrow. If they would send me in a plane right now, I would go and leave everything I left behind and go back. Um, but yeah, it's the people that I'm more concerned about. So that's. And Dan, you know, I've worked with you now for many years and, and I've heard your story dozens, if not a hundred times, you know, you made a great sacrifice. You know, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I guess I'm still trying to kind of figure it out. It's definitely hard to make sense of, you know, and I just don't know if, I, you know, when I'll get there, if I'll get there, you know, like if there's sense to be made out of it. And Megan? So I think for me, uh, it's been about conceptualizing it around this legacy of service for my family. 
Uh, and that's what it meant to me is that my, my family went, I, I was my right hand, I volunteered and um, I, I desperately wanted to serve my country to Chris's point, I would go back in a heartbeat. There are so many veterans that feel the same way that they would do anything to go back and most many long to return to service in some capacity. And so the meaning making for me has been around how do I build this narrative around the sense of service and then how can I continue to serve in the capacity in which I am living now. Um, and I, again, I would do it in a heartbeat and, uh, it meant, in, in some ways I understand Chris's point about it means nothing in some way. And then for me, in some ways, it meant everything, uh, it meant this idea that I, I would volunteer for my nation when they, when they called and they asked someone to show up, I, you know, I said, send me. Skip, what are the potential long-term mental health consequences for veterans because of this chaotic withdrawal? Uh, well. You know, I, I go back to uh, when I was a young sapling psychologist in 1985, working at the VA in Long Beach, working with Vietnam era veterans. And, you know, I think back then we thought PTSD was um, a, um, a, a, an outcome, particularly to Vietnam, because a lot of the veterans that we talked to felt like their service wasn't recognized, that they were disregarded that it was a failed war, and that amplified uh, the uh, you know, incidents of, of PTSD. One thing we, people don't realize is that you know, this is just a natural byproduct of war. World War II, uh, you know, in fact, the National Institute of Mental Health was formed on an executive order by Harry Truman in 1947 to deal with what they called combat neurosis. Um, and so it existed back then. Um, but in World War II, it was a different dynamic. Uh, you know, there was a shared sense of purpose there. Vietnam, it was lacking um, in a lot of ways, I think in a lot of ways unrighteously. Um, and veterans bore that burden of feeling like that their sacrifices, their efforts um, were, were mishandled and uh, not, you know, whatever you want to say about Vietnam. Now, coming to the present day, um, you know, the visuals of this are not good. We may have anticipated it. Um, and I'm sure from everything I'm hearing from the people that were there on this podcast right now, I think I'm hearing a perspective taking that this is unfortunate, but what I did had value. And I think that's an important thing. But there are many people that aren't on this podcast that are going to be looking at this and seeing what these outcomes are. They're going to be questioning, um, why did I do it? What was my, you know, I was called upon to do very difficult things. Did it matter? And in the end, uh, that, you know, that existential meaning, that meaningfulness uh, is what carries people through later challenges that they face in life. So we're going to probably see an uptick of distress, whether I want to call it PTSD, moral injury, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but hopefully, uh, the VA and other healthcare uh, institutions that support veterans' uh, well-being uh, will rise to the challenge, and and hopefully the message will be what you did had meaning, um, and that's the best I can come up with on this because it is um, it is challenging to the psyche when you see some of these things happening now. I saw a veteran on television say, seeking help is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. 
I don't know that I've ever heard anyone put it like that. And I think that is a message that's especially important for veterans to hear right now. What's it going to take to get people, especially men who try to tough things on their own, to embrace that philosophy? Megan, any insight? So I think just any discussion of it, right? Normalizing distress to, to Skip's point earlier, making sure we're having these conversations, going outside your bubble, uh, speaking about levels of distress that may exist. And I think it's also about finding influencers, leaders in the veteran space and having them speak about it as well and expanding that outward and making sure that that is being communicated. So um, I, that's really where I think that we can begin, and especially having men um, talking about it, those men leaders and those, and those kind of power nodes talking about those things can really help. Chris, any thoughts? Yeah, exactly. There's always been a stigma on mental health and you have that military mindset, male or female, doesn't, doesn't matter. We're all kind of ingrained in this. We have to be tough. And, you know, said even that in our ethos, you know, mission first, you know, troop yeah. first, second. So I think getting away from that kind of, and like she, like she said, you know, being out there and putting yourself out there. That's why I kind of put myself out there. And it's, it is hard, but I try to do analogies that people could kind of, or metaphors they could relate to. You know, if you break your arm, you're going to post a picture of it. You're going to be going to the hospital. You're going to get cast and that kind of cool stuff. We seek treatment for medical help. Mental health is the exact same thing. Mental health affects our entire body. If you get a bug or a virus and, go, and you don't treat it, it's going to get in your body and affect your whole body. Well, that's mental health. And I think people, it should be just like everything else. So it just has to be normalized across the nation in our everyday talk. And I think the whole health movement is a good thing. And, it, and it, I'm starting to see, even going back on base and going to infantry units, seeing the embedded mental health person right in the regiment and having the colonel standing there right next to them and being embedded is great because that models mental health by our leaders, which we need to see. So, and we've had generals that, you know, they're, um, their their son sons has taken their life or completed suicide. And so, you know, and them speaking out saying we need to do a better job of mental health. It has to come from the top down and then an individual aspect of peers. I have a lot of friends watching and listening. I know a lot of them are trying to call in. Um, and they have a lot of questions, but it's that peer modeling. We're having that one-on-one. -on -one. We trust each other. So if, you know, if Dan and I were friends on a personal level and we were sitting up, you know, a different place and we could talk like, man, I'm hurting. Okay, yeah. And I think just having that conversation is being open. That's the hardest thing, you know, being vulnerable. You know, there's a whole talk, TED Talks around being about vulnerability, and that's the hardest thing. But when we open ourselves up, we let out some of the pain, and we also bring in some of the healing. So that's a hard thing to have that conversation, no matter who you are, male, female, uh, military, trans, whatever. Everybody needs to be vulnerable to healing. Well, and that's a great point in terms of uh, talking. And you mentioned stigma earlier and, and post-traumatic stress and something that you and Skip and I have talked about dozens of times. I think it's obviously very important that we talk about and talk to veterans, their family members or survivors who are having a difficult time accepting this outcome. To our veterans here today, have you talked in the past week with men and women you served with? And what mental health perspectives are you hearing? Megan, I see you nodding. So many, I'm I mean, so many across the board, whether they served one tour in Afghanistan, multiple, whether they never served in Afghanistan, across generations, across military occupational specialties or MOSs, um, I'm hearing this kind of rampant sense of like uh, something uncompleted. I, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling angry. I feel some shame. I feel guilt. I feel rage. Like I'm hearing all of these things and, and we're seeing this reflected in 
you know, there was a report that numbers to the veterans crisis line are, are have increased. I've heard from nonprofits that work with veterans and military families that they're having an increased uh, requirement for care. And so this, this is it, this isn't like something that we're making up. This is really actually happening, and it's affecting not just the whole population, but all these individual people that are reaching out for care um, and, and looking for access. And so uh, I, I have heard from all of them and the best thing I can do, and I know that this is something we're going to talk about, but making sure that everyone knows the resources that exist and the ability to refer people um, if that distress is more than just like, I'm having, you know, I just want to have a conversation with you and talk about this and kind of normalize my sense of, of distress in this moment. Um, and if it gets worse, where can we, where can you uh, direct them to find those resources? Dan, how about you? Uh, I really haven't talked to anyone about it yet. Just I'm still kind of trying to figure it out for myself. You know, like I haven't really reached out because I don't even know, you know, how I'm feeling about it yet. I'm still trying to just get to the bottom of everything. And then, like the last topic you were talking about too, I think it's the problem with uh, society. You know, you look at like the greatest generation and how, you know, like my grandfather fought in World War II, Vietnam and Korea. My other grandfather was in Korea. They came back and they never spoke about it. And, you know, like I admired that. I thought that was how you're supposed to carry yourself. You know, so I tried doing that for about a decade and it didn't work. You know, I tried to tough it out and white knuckle and it didn't work. And like I, a month ago, I started talking to a therapist finally, you know, and it helped immensely, you know, just to actually process things and actually say them out loud. And, you know, I think it's just something that we have to kind of admit that we need the help. Chris, how about you? Yeah, the conversations have been uh, overwhelming. Um, and surprisingly, the Vietnam vets are the ones that have been most vocal and supportive because they've experienced this. And so they're there going, hey, <laughs> brother, um, I know what you're going through in a certain kind of way. Um, I'm here for you because, you know, and we have to re reflect on them as well. I know we're, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq vets, but our Vietnam vets paved the way for us here and they did not get the happy return and go to the ballpark and the wounded warrior programs. And here's all this free swag and all this stuff that we don't need. They had, they're the ones who created all these programs. So I think it's always like history. You have to look back to the people who got us here and our Vietnam vets have been there for me. Uh, my brothers are still kind of sending stupid memes and doing what we do. You know, that's our dark humor or coping skill, but you know, it's that honors conversation. I've had a lot of, Wrenching conversation. I reached out to you. First thing I thought about was you guys in mental health, Chris and Skip. I was like, I'm hurting. Um, what can we do? You guys are thought leaders in this space. Let's make this happen. So I'm glad this is happening today. No, thanks for your time. And Megan, Dak, your, your pointer about uh, what resources are, are available. Here's just a few that I've got in my notes. Uh, there's one called BeThereForVeterans.com. That's for the VA. Also, the Veterans Crisis Line, which is confidential support, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365. That number is 1-800-273-8255 and press one. There are several others. There's a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And again, obviously call 911 as, uh, I don't want to say a last resort, but certainly the easiest number um, to call. So one veteran said, these recent events in Afghanistan are an incredible catalyst for reflection. In that respect, and this question is for all four of you, can anything good come out of this for veterans who served in Afghanistan and Iraq? Megan, go ahead. I see you reaching for the mute button. Just trying to be proactive to make sure I can unmute myself. <laughs> Gotten better over the last year. Uh, I think that Skip said it perfectly, right? That this is an opportunity for reflection and, and truly a, an opportunity for change within the Department of Defense, but also from a broader perspective around what it means to be an American. 
Um, so I think that this can be, there can be some good. There can always be a silver lining out of this. Uh, and my hope is that there is this opportunity for reflection, both within the veteran population, but and for America at large, because this is so devastating. But my deepest fear, if I'm being honest, is this is being siloed again. I have friends who are very close with me who are not you know, affiliated with the military at all, who have asked me like, oh, is this a big thing that's happening for veterans? Now, kudos to them for asking the question. And I worry again, by virtue of being an all volunteer force that we are not seeing the forest for the trees. And we're actually not having these conversations at a national level that we, that we need to be. So I hope that opportunities like this can, can create this conversation so that we can have some change. Chris? I'm sorry, I, there's, there's so many things going on. I'm gonna explain. No, right I, now. that's Where's okay. Uh, what was the question? I'm Just, sorry. Can anything good come out of this? You see positive. Yes. Um, reflection. I mean, reflection and finding that new that new sense of meaning and purpose and reevaluating your job and a total reframe. And I think you said it earlier, somebody said it earlier, like knowing, reevaluating what you did, you did what you could do in your role. As an infantryman, I controlled my squad, team, platoon, and I did what we did and everything above us. That's way beyond my pay grade. So just coming to grips with what you did, owning it, um, good or bad, and then just reevaluating re where you're at. And then I think as a nation, you know, I said, get knocked down six or seven times and get back up. We have to get back up as individuals, as a nation, and that's a whole other topic. But, you know, we have to be, do the, you can only help, you're going to control your, your little sphere of control yourself. Control yourself, then work on your, you know, self-aid, buddy aid, and work from there and work outwards and try to do the best you can. Dan, any thoughts? I just hope the lessons stick. You know, I mean, if we do go to war again in the future, I hope it's more transparent. We have a clear notion of what we're going for, what we're trying to achieve, you know, where is the end? So we don't get drugged into another decades-long, you know, situation across the world and then get forgotten mode. Chris, a few minutes ago, you mentioned veteran suicide. You know, we were already losing more than 20 veterans a day to suicide. And the concern obviously now is that we may see an increase in veterans taking their own lives. Skip, what are some of the warning signs that someone could be suicidal? Well, I think we have a, <clears throat> I think we have a seedbed here for, for some of that in the sense of, you know, one of the, you know, if you distill it down to the final thing about suicide, it's a loss of hope a foreshortened view of the future, the idea that everything is beyond my control. I, it's not going to change. I don't have any hope. I can't change it. And then suicide becomes an option that's, you know, maybe more desirable than the pain people are suffering. And our job is to somehow uh, get across the idea that there is help out there and the help matters. And, in addition to getting the help, you can, by going through that journey and overcoming this, you can be a source of help for your peers, your comrades, your brothers in arms, and, and to give people meaning from their suffering. I, I don't want to sound trite here, but uh, when people go through traumatic events and get through to the other side, you, sometimes you see what people refer to as post-traumatic growth. And giving people meaning or helping them to find meaning in their suffering that may be as part of the, the military ethos of, you know, being able to help your comrade uh, so that you get to the other side, you're going to be a source of strength 
for others. And maybe that's part of the message. But before you get to that message, you know, addressing the stigma issue that you brought up, uh, you know, that is a big challenge, not only for service members, but for a lot of people. Mental health in society and worldwide is viewed as something that's a sign of weakness. It's getting better, but it's a generational glacial change. You know, this whole thing with the Olympics and gymnast uh, pulling out. I think that might have been a good thing. Uh, for the world to see that somebody at a high level of performance can say, hey, look, I got to tap out. And that's not a sign of weakness. And and so, you know, look at the World World Health Organization estimates 600 million people are walking the planet right now with a mental health condition of which fully two thirds will never see the inside of a therapy office. We've got a lot of work ahead of us. Um, and sometimes the military leads the way. I think the military is really trying to destigmatize, just like what you had said earlier, Chris, about asking for help is a sign of strength. And maybe that will follow over police officers, first responders, firefighters, you know, people that have gone through really difficult things in their civilian existence. It's okay to ask for help. And hopefully, we're going we're gonna to have the resources here to be able to provide it, whether it's, you know, formal clinical care, which is very good and has good outcomes, is available, or peer support. And that goes back to the suicide thing. Helping somebody that's uh, at risk for suicide realize that they have a role still to play in life as dark as it seems now. And that role can be assisting your brothers and sisters moving forward from your suffering. We have just about two minutes left here. I want to share one last thing with, with our panel. The senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, an Air Force career special operator named Ramon Colon Lopez, urged veterans to be proud of what you did because you've kept the country safe for over the last 20 years. What does it take to focus on a positive message like that when you're immersed in so much negative news? Drop the mic on that one. Yeah, I guess you're doing what you're doing right now is part of it, you know, setting up a platform for us to talk and however many number of people are hearing this, um, I think is, is a step that everybody has to be open to and open to talking about in a, in a less finger pointing, blaming fashion, but in a way that is going to cherish uh, sacrifices that people have made. Um, and, and put value on that and look forward to learning from those challenges and, and moving forward in a good way. Dan Rose, Megan Mobs, Chris Merkel, and Dr. Skip Rizzo. Sorry, Dr. Megan Mobs. Thanks so much for being with us today. And as always, thank you to our wonderful audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.